really nice to be here and see everybody. Being in an urban setting like we are here, where I am also in Minnesota and Minneapolis, I think it should be provocative, this emphasis, for those who've been around even for a little bit of time. You know that in the Buddhist teachings, it's renunciation is strongly encouraged, right? And uh, yet everything about our life, whether you have kids or not, or a cat or dog, or property or friendships, passions that you care about, wanting to make the world a better place, <coughs> it just seems that attachment is required to be an engaged human being. It's really hard you know, and part of it is just language, but it's really hard to imagine living our life without attachment. And so I thought it would be a useful conversation to have, and not just tonight, but ongoingly in our practice. Because a lot of the forms that we take up, like city meditation, those who are here for the 630 sit, you know, I mean, it's a profound renunciation of doing, you know, because we're sitting still and our minds could think and plan and worry, and they do, I'm sure you've noticed, but we're cultivating a mind that isn't obsessing with the doing, the planning, the worrying, the imagining, the fantasizing. We're cultivating a heart that lets things be the heart that allows thoughts to come and go. You could even say, I mean, it's not necessarily a common experience, but the direction you probably recognize that. So even though we may not experience the nth degree of non-doing or going to zero, putting down the load, I mean, we do when we have deep sleep in the middle of the night. We're just not aware. We're not consciously aware of the mind for, maybe some of you know, how many moments that the mind actually drops planning, worrying. I mean, in dream state, of course, it has the look of a dream, but it's still that cognitive activity. But most days, right, at least for a little bit of time in the middle of the night, maybe sometimes in meditation practice, the mind puts all that down. So we have a little bit of taste of non-doing, and then doing begins again, whether we're sitting still or out in the day doing all the things that we do. And then the interesting question in the real, the topic for this talk is, can that doing, does that doing imply attachment? Does the mind, does the heart and body need to be tight because there's doing? Is there a way for the mind, the heart and the body to be released in the way that it's released maybe in deep sleep or in deep states of meditation when the mind gets very quiet and the uh, feeling of peace is really strong and because the mind is attuned 
to that inner peace or ease, then for those moments, the mind isn't involved in that much doing. Right? But how about when we're at our job sites or dealing with our families or addressing this world that needs our showing up, can there still be that sense of release? So I hope it's a provocative topic because I'd be a little concerned for myself or for anyone if somehow um, it seemed that, oh yeah, I get that, you know, because it's, it's, a, it's a high bar to be engaged and the heart released at the same time. And when, when it happens, it kind of stands out. You know, we, we sometimes feel we had a mystical experience. You know, I was in the flow. I was in the groove. It was so beautiful. Right? Those moments that we've, hopefully, if we reflect, maybe you didn't, it didn't occur to you at the time, but maybe upon reflection you could imagine or remember a few times when you were completely awake, you weren't in deep sleep, you weren't sitting still in meditation, your eyes were seeing, your ears were he hearing, your body maybe was in motion, thoughts, actual, actually, you had thoughts moving in the mind, you were thinking about things, and there was no friction, there was no weight, there was no problem, no squeeze on the heart, no burden. So it's not a common experience, but maybe, and certainly we know the difference between being in our day and really tight, right? Really controlling or fearful or wanting to close down, reactive one way or another, and times when there's less re reactivity. So we know that. Maybe you don't know the experience to the nth degree where there apparently is no reactivity in the mind, body, heart. But you know when there's a lot, and we know when there's less. So let me begin by talking a little bit about renunciation, just because it's such an important theme in the Buddhist teachings. There's an interesting story um, where there was an elder monk, um, Badia, and uh, he had been a king or some powerful person before he ordained as a Buddhist monk, a bhikkhu. And some younger monks were walking nearby where his, you know, where his tree or his little hut was, wherever he was staying in the woods. And they would hear him from time to time to himself say, oh, what bliss, oh, what bliss. So these younger monks were concerned. They thought maybe he was imagining the time before when he was a king and not liking his you know, relatively simple renunciate life, living out in the woods, meditating, not really having much social engagements. And they thought they'd better tell the Buddha you know, that this guy's losing it. So they did. They told the Buddha, and the Buddha said to the younger monks, well, go tell 
but he had to come see me. And so they did, and then he came to the Buddha, and the Buddha asked him about that. What meaning do you have in mind that you repeatedly exclaim, what bliss, what bliss? And so he answered the Buddha, before when I was a householder maintaining the bliss of kingship, I had guards posted within and without the royal apartments, within and without the city, within and without the countryside. But even though I was thus guarded, thus protected, I dwelled in fear, agitated, distrustful, and afraid. But now on going alone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, to an empty dwelling, I dwell without fear, unagitated, confident, and unafraid, unconcerned, unruffled, my wants satisfied with my mind like a wild deer. This is the meaning I have in mind that I repeatedly exclaim, what bliss, what bliss. And the Buddha was inspired by his response, so the Buddha gave this refrain or this verse, in whom there exists no provocation and for whom becoming and non-becoming are overcome, they are one beyond fear, blissful, without grief. And then this is the interesting phrase, whom the dewas can't see. Dewas is a word for like subtle angelic beings, celestial beings, right? So that's sort of interesting. Like what does that mean that the angels can't see somebody who is, has a body, has a life, feeds the body, you know, has normal, maybe living more simply than others. But what would it mean that even the devas, the angelic beings, can't see? And the Buddha's pointing not to the fact, because we might think this, you know, heart that's free of any contention, any reactivity, is because he's out in the forest. But what we're interested in is, what is that mind like, whether I'm in Cambridge or out in the forest? What is the mind without contention, without provocation, unruffled, not afraid? And this image of even the dewas, like people can't see them, it's because what they see, right? they don't see the neurotic person the doing, the doer, right? What they see is the activity of nature. Do you ever sense that sometimes when you're observing somebody just in the groove, in the flow, not tied up into, tied up with greed or tied up with wanting to be seen, needing to be seen? Someone just really comfortable, completely comfortable in their own skin? You know, it's a, it's almost like sometimes the mind sees that as the activity of nature. Right? We don't see the person we see, you know, you might give it a word where you see goodness. But the thing that really, I think, makes an impression on our hearts is not so much what's there, but what's not there. When we are fortunate enough to see somebody who's just expressing beautiful natural forces like kindness, like curiosity, non-fear, non-greed, 
حلو And I think this is the important teaching about renunciation, even though a lot of us sit every day or sit most days, we find that ritual of finding a quiet place, sitting down in a relatively comfortable way, upright way, so the mind is somewhat awake, and then staying there for some period of time, we find it really useful. It's like going to kindergarten, Like if we want to be that kind of a human being that at least for moments at a time live as a force of nature, not as a doer, not somebody who's afraid, trying to fix, trying to become somebody, trying to get somewhere. All of that, if we look, we honestly, we see that's stressful. Even, I'm talking about even relatively wholesome desires to like want to be a good person, want to have a mind that is free of greed, even what we would call Buddhisty aspirations like that, you know, wanting to be awake. But the clinging, the identification leads to being the doer and struggling. We are then at war with the part of the mind, the latent tendencies of the mind to be greedy or to want to be attached, to want to own and hold on to and be seen as, you know, all these sort of normal aspects of our personality, right? So this is the problem with any attachment, even the most wholesome attachments It always comes with stress. And this is for us to check out. Like, is that actually true in your life? Have you ever, I mean, and I don't expect you to remember from the past so much, but going forward, I mean, wouldn't that be an interesting investigation? All the little ways and big ways where attachment feels justified. Of course I'm attached. You know, all those places. But then just simply, honestly acknowledge what goes with attachment. You know, the, there's a energetic squeeze, there's a energetic weight with whatever attachment we have. And then, see, this is when we hear that, then we, we have this, and this is a real shadow Uh, a real misunderstanding of the Buddhist teachings because the more we recognize that attachment and struggling to make things better with attachment, that that hurts, that that squeeze in the heart, that tension in the body and mind hurts, it seems like it makes sense then to just give up. Like, yeah, the world is a mess. Have you noticed? And even our relationships, even our good relationships are messy, right? Even really wholesome relationships are difficult. And not only that, my mind, I don't know about yours, but my mind is difficult. <laughs> Do you know that line from Gandhi? And he was talking about his troubles. And he, you know, he would often talk about the British you know, the British leaders, 
you know, yeah, problematic, but the least of his problems. The Indian people, much more of a problem. And the biggest problem, my mind. Uh, I thought that was a powerful instruction, that the really pointing to the mind as the source. So this shadow is somehow, oh yeah, the Buddha's right, the world is messy, attachment hurts, so just get me out of here. And it can seem like that's the purpose of spiritual life, is to get the heck out of here. I'll go to Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, you know, and I'll hang out there. I don't care what's going on tonight. I'm just going to come, you know, and I'll have a cup of tea in the tea room, and then I'll sit in the library, and I'll just randomly choose a book, and then I'll go to the program, and I'll escape, you know, the chaos, because I'll have to shut my cell phone off, and only wise and blissful people are there. And it can almost feel like, you know, we're not allowed to be human beings when we come to a place like this. You know, like, is it okay to have neurotic thoughts? Sometimes when people are willing to be honest, because we have a center a little bit like Cambridge in Minneapolis, maybe not quite as big, but, you know, active urban center. And uh, just recently somebody, I was having a practice meeting with someone and, and they were saying, you know, yeah, just sort of lamenting how it's, you know, I don't feel like it can be myself because I swear. Or, you know, I like to go out and drink. or And there can be this sort of affect or this flavor of the place that uh, some parts of ourselves aren't allowed here. The noisy or the wild or the lustful or the... And so this is all part of that shadow where we have to repress the so-called icky bits, <laughs> naughty bits, or you know whatever you want to call it, because we're aspiring to be the good bits. And we don't realize, but that's what sets up the war, you know, the dualistic war between good and bad. And then there's, we may not see it, but there's some kind of inner hate going on, inner fear about those tendencies of my heart to be whatever, you know, our tendencies are, to, to need to be seen or to need to be liked or the need to be better than. So it makes sense, right, that the Buddha teaches that identity, attachment, any kind of fixed view, any way that the heart or mind is dependent, it makes sense that the Buddha points at that as that suffering, that hurts. Because when we check it out, lo and behold, that's what we find too. When we look at a fixed identity, a fixed view, holding to this, holding to that, it hurts. So then it seems like, well, I can't be in this embodied, dualistic world. 
So then we start pretending that we can leave it, right? And then things get really neurotic. I mean, when, when you look at spiritual traditions, religious traditions, I mean, they've been as guilty as any system, any institutional system in perpetuating suffering. And Buddhism isn't immune. You know, institutional Buddhism isn't immune to these horrific acts and ways of oppressing other people, harming other people. Because it's more about being right than it is about understanding the heart and learning how to put down the load, how to liberate the heart. And it's never, you know, it's never an institutional thing. I mean, you probably get that, but it's surprisingly easy to forget that. Where we feel like if I can align with somebody, like a charismatic teacher or a, a, an ancient and seemingly wise tradition set of teachings or whatever, that I'll... Or anything, you know, any sort of ideology. I'm a secular humanist, or whatever it might be, to kind of feel like I've got the truth or some safety. Basically, again, thinking that attachment, fixed identity is going to save us. And it really comes down to the how the Buddha talks about craving or desire. And I think it really goes to this topic for tonight about wholehearted engagement, how to be a human being with a body, a heart, a feeling heart, a human being with relationships, a human being that's living in a messy world that's asking for our engagement, needs our engagement, right? How to be alive in the conditions and the circumstances that we're alive in and free of attachment, free of the weight of attachment. And I think it, it comes down to understanding craving or desire because we hear a lot. This is a common, powerful, essential teaching from the Buddha that the cause of suffering is a is craving. And when there's no craving in the heart and mind, there's no suffering. And when there's craving in the heart and mind, there's suffering. So this again, this is something that we can actually check out. It's not something to believe in, like to carve on the wall and to prostrate down. Okay, that's a great teaching. I'm so glad I know the truth. Now I can go and live my life any way I want. But it's really to sort of check out. And that's that famous line, ehi pasiko, come and see. Come and check this teaching out in your own experience. And then the question is, well, what does the Buddha mean by craving? And I really like this more nuanced answer. Craving is the attachment or identification with desire. So desire, th this is nice, because then it normalizes desire. As long as we're in this sensory realm where we see and we hear and we touch and we smell and we taste and we feel with the heart, 
as long as we have a life, as long as we have relationships, right, there will be desire. And that should make us feel, okay, good, because it was seeming a little strange that somehow the resolution of suffering would be to be here but without desire. Because I don't know about you, but I mean, there are moments when desire gets very refined, right? Just like there are moments when desire is relatively gross, not in a negative sense, but gross in a dense or, um, yeah, more ordinary sense of the word. So the, the Buddha's teachings on desire and craving, it's really about a transformation of understanding what our mind is taking desire or craving to be, or how the mind can understand craving, understand desire for what it is. It's a, it's a movement in the heart and mind, right? And sometimes it has, or often, it has a visceral flavor you can feel, like when you're hungry or when you want to be seen, want to be acknowledged by your partner, let's say, or want to be held or want to be left alone, right? You can, you can almost feel sometimes when the desire is strong. But the interesting thing is what does the mind do with desire? What kind of meaning does the mind construct around desire? And to really begin to see that, that's always in play. We may not have a choice about being a human being and having desire. Probably there's no option there, right? Living, sensing what we sense, having the experiences we have, and the conditioned, you know, the latent tendencies that we all have in our conditioned minds, desires are going to arise all the time. We see a nice shawl, oh, it's nice, you know. We notice somebody's haircut, or an image comes of our refrigerator at home, and then that desire is there. And if we think that's bad, then that's just another desire, like I want to be the one who doesn't need a snack when I get home at night, <laughs> right? I want to be the one who knows there's food in there, but I don't have to go there. You know, I know there's internet, but I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to check the news. I'm not going to check my email. I'm going to be a good Buddhist, right? I'm going to put my pajamas on and sit in the full lotus on my bed and do loving-kindness practice, boundless state of loving-kindness until sleep arises and then I'll just sort of slide under the covers and have a very deep and profound blissful sleep. And after about four hours I will awaken and again I'll just you know, use the toilet and come back into samadhi posture. And that's, you know, that's our particular, or at least a stereotype of our particular kind of suffering, those kind of ideals, right? 
that we judge ourselves by. So this topic of engagement without attachment or embodying human existence, embodying this human existence with these circumstances that each of us, each, you know, with our particular circumstances, where we are in our life cycle, closer to that, you know, that which will remain unnamed, death, <laughs> right? Or more at the beginning part. Of course, we don't even know, right? We could remember that, that we don't know. Or where we are in terms of class, you know, professionals or, you know, blue collar or whatever, how, whatever our, that identity around class might be for us. Somebody who's comfortable, somebody who has financial anxiety. Or where we are in any of the categories of difference that are impactful for us, that are quite meaningful. Because again, the shadow could seem to be the shadow in Buddhist teachings, this misunderstanding of the Buddhist teachings, could seem to be saying that it doesn't matter. None of this matters, right? It, identities, difference, these things don't matter. But, and that's so confusing to us because our lived experience is that it does matter. So more helpful teaching might be, yeah, it does matter. How do I know it matters? Because I, I feel it. And so the interesting question is, what do I do with the impact? What do I do with the feeling that I have? So if I'm a white, straight male now, nowadays, you know, I'm actually middle class, and uh, that feels nice, but I'm a little, you know, it's sort of, I have this ambiguous feeling about having, like, some retirement savings. And um, so... How do I relate? That's the interesting question. Like, I could relate with being ashamed that I have some middle-class affluence now. You know, I can basically afford really nice food, and I can afford the kind of clothes I want to wear, and I live in a really comfortable place. And the interesting question is how, what is the skillful way for me to relate to those circumstances? What ways can I relate that cause me and others harm? What ways can I relate that are enlivening and liberating, easy, light? Now you might think, well, not thinking about it much, or being oblivious, I don't want to think about it. But it's surprising now when our mind isn't sensitive, it, that might seem you know, denial or distraction about all of these more subtle questions might see the way forward. I'm just not going to think about it. But the more we do our practice, which, like it or not, makes us sensitive, we realize that not being aware is stressful needing to not be aware, like my sense of well-being depends on me not asking certain questions or looking certain places, acknowledging certain truths about my life, about the systemic dynamics of being who I am. 
So distraction doesn't actually feel good anymore. Just like we learn usually earlier on that hating ourselves for whatever reasons we might hate ourselves or judging ourselves for all the reasons we might judge, that that doesn't actually help either, right? Or we learn that rationalizing doesn't feel good either, you know, having to justify our existence. So a lot of what we learn just through our practice, we get sensitive and then we start to notice all the mind's strategies. Mostly what we learn is what doesn't help. Well, that doesn't work. That doesn't help. And we're kind of left in this place where I don't actually know. Here I am. I have a body. I have a life. I have these circumstances. And I don't know what to do with everything I'm sensitive to. I often kind of jokingly say to folks after they've been practicing for a while, and this is sort of the, it's not exactly like this for everyone, you know, because everyone's different, but generally, you know, people practice and after some kind of, some amount of sincere practice, they learn a little bit about how to settle down in their meditation. Their, their mind gets a little quieter, the body becomes a little bit more calm, and it, you know, we call that samadhi, and it feels good in an inner sort of way, that inner ease, inner peace, inner calm, feels good. But there's a side effect, and most of, some of you for sure know this, which is for the rest of your life then, as you go forward, you get your little nice sets from time to time, but they might even become less frequent. And then during the rest of your day, you're a little bit more raw, a little bit more open, a little bit more exposed. Distraction doesn't seem to work as well as it used to work. You know, like going to the fridge, you know, it's like you've got this, this sort of nasty little presence that's aware of what it feels like. I mean, it's not actually nasty, but you, you don't really want it there. You know, it's like when I'm scrolling through the news sites looking for something juicy to feed my self-righteousness or something, <laughs> you know, it's very inconvenient to have that non-judging presence there like, honey, do you really, is this helping? Do you really want to be doing this? Because the part of the mind that does want to do that, it's like that's the only way it knows how to disappear. But it only works when you're not paying attention to what you're doing. Right? Because the whole point is to, you know, if you could, you'd go to samadhi. But that, for whatever reason, doesn't seem available. Right? You would go to have a really quiet sit. But instead, you want to disappear into a TV show or a novel or self-righteousness with the news or, you know, spinning about this, gossiping, talking to your friends about stuff you don't really need to talk about or any number of other ways, obsessively eating food you don't really need to be eating. So this, you know, development of our practice makes, all brings all this stuff out into the light of day. Oh, 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 this is what that habit, that pattern feels like, looks like. It's, you know, we feel that any attachment 
Anything the mind is dependent on comes with a squeeze in the heart. It's heavy. But normally, you know, people, before we uh, get some momentum in our practice, it's like we're too distracted to notice the costs or the effects of being attached, being the mind being dependent. So this is the this is sort of the deal we make. You want to wake up, you want to explore this freedom that the Buddha points to. It's sort of uh, no going back. I always joke about places like Cambridge Insight that they should have a a sign, a nice, elegant sign, like most of the things are in this building, but still some little warning sign that says, if you take up this practice with some sincerity, you will begin to see and feel what you're not seeing and feeling. And it may not be pleasant. It's likely not to be pleasant what you see. But, you know, in the way the Buddha analyzed the mind and he talked about it in terms of the Four Noble Truths, a particular teaching that in some ways is synonymous with wisdom, right? It's the mind seeing suffering as a lawful condition, conditional arising, like this just doesn't happen. It happens because of certain conditions. So when there's attachment to desire, there's suffering. Suffering is relevant. The squeeze in the heart is relevant because we need to acknowledge it in a clear way, in an honest way, to see how it is that it's arising. Oh, the mind is mistakenly attaching, identifying with desire. Desire is natural. It's actually even the most seemingly personal desires that we have they're not really personal. They arise because of how the heart and mind has been conditioned. And you can start to see that. But even now, just taking that as some information, that desire is normal, it's natural, and it's really nature in the sense that when you have a strong desire or a weak desire arising, that's not you in the normal way we would think it's me. I mean... It's okay to say to your friends, I have this desire, I mean, in terms of language. But when you're really looking at it with awareness, you see that that desire that's there in the body and mind, it arose because of very particular causes and conditions. And if, there, if those conditions weren't there, that desire wouldn't be there either. Like when I said the word refrigerator, some of you actually thought about your refrigerator. And not the outside, but the inside, like what's there, right? And then you might have had a desire, like if there's nothing there, the desire to stop at a grocery store on the way home or something like that. Or if there is something there, oh yeah, that would be nice. Maybe I'll have that when I go home. But if I hadn't said that word, that momentary desire wouldn't have arisen, right? That image and then the clinging the mind identifying, making up meaning based on the mental image of the refrigerator and what's in that, right? So 
this cause for suffering is the identification with desire. So how can we have desire without being confused by it? And see, then it really allows us, because not all desires are worthy of doing something about, right? Some desires, I mean, if we acted on all of our desires, we'd be in jail. (laughs) Or some of us (laughs) would be in jail. But we'd probably be in trouble, right? If we acted on all of our desires, every single one, even the ones you're not admitting to yourself right now. (laughs) Maybe especially the ones you're not admitting to yourself. But it would be very helpful to be able to see all of those desires, even the ones we're ashamed about. Because they're not personal, we can let them be acknowledged. Oh yeah, being a human being, having a conditioned mind in the way that this mind is conditioned, sometimes it's like this. Sometimes this kind of desire arises. But it's just what it is. It's just that thing we call a desire, you know, that mental, emotional, whatever, movement. It's just that thing, that natural process that we call desire. It's just that. And then as I see it, feel it, look at it, know it, allow it, there will be some sense based on past experience whether acting out that desire is helpful or not. I mean, every once in a while, maybe, there's a desire you've never had before. But, right, most of the desires that arise we're somewhat familiar with, right? So we have some lived experience in terms of acting that desire out and what that sets in motion, right? When's the last time you've had a desire that you didn't have any experience acting out or observing somebody else acting out, right? Maybe this is why even before books and people were writing tragedies and that got turned into books, people were telling stories about tragedies. I mean, it's basically all of storytelling throughout human history were just different ways of talking about cause and effect. Oh yeah, when you have this desire and you act it out in this way, then this happens. You know? And then, oh yeah, and then there's this other kind of desire that happens. And when that happens and you act it out, and you get this kind of consequence, right? I mean, these morality tales. This is what, this is like paying attention to cause and effect. So that's what happens when we're sitting here with awareness or just out in our day with awareness and a desire comes up. We feel it. And because we're not afraid of it, because we know it's just nature to have desire. And sometimes the desire is to do something about the injustice of the criminal justice system, right? It's a really noble movement in the heart or to do something about climate change or to do something about you know, patriarchy in our culture. But the question still, we, we still have to sort of see what the mind is inclined to do with that desire, right? We see some suffering and the heart is appropriately moved by the suffering we see. Or we see some positive possibility, 
and we're inspired by that. But we need to feel in to that movement in the heart. And you'll see there are many ways that the heart, not just one, there are many ways that the heart can relate to that movement, to the movement of desire. And wouldn't you know, the Buddha breaks it down for us in a really simple, powerful teaching on the three wholesome and three unwholesome roots. There was a really famous talk he gave about, uh, he was just telling his students of a time before his own deep insight, when he was a practitioner like us, trying to make sense of his mind and the causes for suffering and the causes for freedom. And it occurred to him, so he's just a practitioner like us, and it occurred to him, you know, I wonder, as I'm observing my mind, paying attention, being mindfully aware, I wonder if I put into one category all the movements of my heart that I'd characterize as greed or ill will, aversion, fear, anger, or delusion, right? And I put on the other side of the equation all the movements of my heart that I'd characterize as non-greed, like renunciation, letting go, letting be, acceptance, contentment, non-stinginess, right? And all the qualities of my heart, the movements of my mind and heart that I characterize as non-aversion, like kindness and a strong commitment to not harming. And non-delusion, right? Non-distraction. Not presuming, you know, part of delusion is thinking, oh, I already know what's going on, so I don't have to pay attention. So non-delusion is really this commitment to paying attention, and in particular, paying attention to the experience of the heart suffering, the heart being tight, and the experience of release. Understanding that's always relevant. In fact, it's the only relevant thing to be observing, to be interested in the causes for suffering, the causes for not suffering. Like even now, if you're sitting here identified with the image of yourself at home in bed because you're tired, if you're observing that, you'll see the needing to be home in bed is suffering. Actually being home in bed may not be suffering, but being here and not wanting to be here is suffering. Right? So that's, that, that's the non-delusion. So if you're noticing that, then the mind's on this side, right? Because what it's doing is clarifying and liberating. But if you're just deluded, identified with the image, oh, it'd be so nice to be home in bed, then you're suffering. So the Buddha just, what happens if I just do that? Put the unwholesome roots and know, oh yeah, these are the unwholesome roots. This is what I've been learning when these qualities are present in the mind, greed, aversion, distraction, thinking I know, that's what distraction is, so I don't have to pay attention. 
I notice I'm suffering. But when you pay attention to these, mindful of these, they diminish, they go away. And when we're not paying attention, but paying attention to these things, greed, anger, and delusion, is that pleasant? It's sort of funny how being aware is unpleasant but liberating. When you see that you have a lot of greed in your heart, and instead of just being lost in the greed, identified, spinning with it, acting it out, you have enough momentum in that moment to acknowledge, oh yeah, greed is like this. Greed is being known. Well, greed is unpleasant, but it's liberating to see that greed is unpleasant. Because then the mind, the heart, the wisdom there won't act it out. And this is the cause for release. This is interesting. So attachment drops away because the mind sees that attachment is the cause for suffering. We don't let go of attachment because we've learned in a Buddhist talk or talk about Buddhism that attachment is the cause for suffering. Suffering is abandoned when we see that suffering hurts. In the same way, like when you're holding a hot pan, it's when you know that it's hurting that you let go. If you're unaware that it's hurting, you'll continue to hold until there's some clarity. Oh yeah, burning's like this. And you let go. And it's the same thing. We have to see it. So now going back to the, the bigger question about attachment or uh, engagement, living our life fully, wholly, wholeheartedly, right? But without attachment, it doesn't mean not having desires, not going to the grocery store, not cleaning the bathroom, not taking care of the kids or feeding the cat, or showing up at Cambridge Insight Center, or going on retreat, or marching for justice, or calling your congressperson, or whatever you, you know, whatever needs doing, basically. So it's not like how to show up in all the places that life is asking us to show up, so that we're allowing desire to move, but desire can move with contentment and generosity, that's the non-greed, and love and compassion and kindness. There's a lot of powerful motive force in these wholesome intentions. You don't need hate to dig in or to get active. You know, just think about something like falling in love and deciding to live with another human being. You know, do you need the fear of being alone to figure out how to have a committed relationship? I mean, even on an intellectual level, we'd probably be suspicious like that that would actually help. (laughs) But, you know, what would be the motive what would be a positive motive force for being together? Or doing anything, coming to the talk tonight, 
And this is the great thing about mindful awareness, our, our basic practice, just learning to show up with this clear and more and more prof- profoundly sensitive, non-judging, patient presence, is we feel a lot of different intentions. Some would be on this side, some on this side. But because we have this capacity to just be present, we don't have to jump on the first intention. Why would we suspect that the first intention in the mind would be a wise one or a wholesome one? Often it's not. But we have this option of just knowing that that greed is there or that ill will is there, hate, hate or aversion is there. Or maybe something more quiet, not, not so strong, but there's a more quiet intention to take care of ourselves with kindness or to take care of the situation, to act out this commitment to reduce the causes for harm, to minimize harm. Because that's a very natural, organic intention in our heart. When we're distracted, we may not notice it, but when you're not distracted, you're in a pretty balanced place, and you see some creature that's hurting, that you can do something that could minimize their hurt, isn't isn't it a pretty natural thing for a human being to respond? You know, if you saw a little four-year-old with a skinned knee, you know, you would kneel down, you would say something, you would find their parent or clean the wound, put a Band-Aid on it, and, and if you looked, it would feel good all the way through. Like the purity of that intention. You know, it's a beautiful intention. And to act it out and to actually be able to help somebody minimize somebody's suffering, whether it's your own suffering or the suffering of another, it feels good. Just like when you take care of yourself. You go home tonight and you do a little yoga, a little mindful stretching, you make a nice cup of tea, you really take care of yourself, right? You're acting on this, these intentions of compassion and kindness. Or if you call your congressperson, right? That can feel good. Oh yeah, I feel good having done that. I don't know how big of an effect it is, but I felt moved and I did something And now when I remember that, it leaves a good taste. It feels good. All these little things. And can't you imagine like moment by moment by moment in your life, find if you're patient enough, mindful enough, finding some movement of kindness, some movement of compassion, some movement of letting go or contentment or generosity to live out, to act on. It probably doesn't take that much creativity to start filling our lives with more and more of these actions. Because otherwise it can seem very idealistic, this wholehearted engagement without attachment. You know, it's like we go immediately to some image of Mother Teresa or some saint you know, who's like doing amazing things in the world, doctors without borders, or, you know, something where I'm 
you know, completely selfless. I don't, I own one shirt and one pair of pants and, you know, and have one meal a day and I've totally given myself over. But most of us aren't built that way. You know, we need a, at least right now, we, we've grown accustomed to certain comforts and to deny ourselves of them I'm, I'm not saying that we couldn't move in that direction of living more simply but a lot of this renunciation is like being mean to ourselves it's like it's wrong for me to have that well the problem isn't having comfort the problem is being dependent or attached so that if they go away, because sometimes things change, then we suffer. But when something nice comes our way and it isn't causing harm, then we practice really receiving it. Why wouldn't we? That would be a kind thing to do. It's really, it can be very... um, tricky as long as our mind is on the level of image or idealism or some view, some picture of what it means to be good or what it means to be bad. But we're in much safer territory when we're in this more intimate place of noticing the quality of the intention. Is it greedy? Is it aversive? Is it deluded? Thinking that I know or is it kind? Is it committed to non-harming? Is it willing to let go? Is it willing to be simple? Right? So we're like these, we learn to trust certain movements of the heart and not trust other movements of the heart. And then the interesting thing is like, well, what, how can I live my life, have my relationships, follow my heart you know the we've been conditioned to like and not like certain things and to be sensitive and not sensitive to certain things how can I follow the sensitivities that my heart already has but be feeding these wholesome intentions and weakening starving these unwholesome intentions and what would our lives look like if we lived more and more in that way That's kind of the interesting question, and I'll open it up for discussion now because you might have some thoughts. Many of you have been practicing for a long time, and you've learned a thing or two about recognizing the unwholesome and the wholesome intentions and feeling that gravitational pull for the intentions that have the most momentum and learning how to creatively water the wholesome intentions, especially in those more sticky places in our lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.